What's going on, guys? Welcome to the Marlboro Show. Today we have Deborah Bivey. Uh Deborah is actually the first person that I had kind of like interviewed. It wasn't really supposed to be a podcast, but the conversation was so good that it was like the motivator for uh, me to start everything. So I really appreciate to have you uh, today, uh, Deborah. Um, and Deborah is a psychology professor, and I believe you're the the also the head of the psychology faculty uh, hack, right? No, okay. no. Um, I've just been there a long time. Yeah. <laughs> classes. So it seems that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a perception like that. But, but um, today we're going to be speaking about sexual health um, because Deborah has a class that she teaches on the topic. Uh, I recently had an interview with Holy Dolan from the Honor Family Health Services, where we spoke about um, sexually trans transmitted infections. And I was like, I feel like we actually need to dive in more on this topic, especially in a community uh, level, because uh, a lot of people have a stigma when it comes to talking about sex, that I feel that it's important that we kind of like open the doors for people to talk about it in a, in a free way where they're not like, they don't feel constrained. So that being said, Deborah, thank you for being on the show today. Well, thank you for allowing me to talk about one of my favorite topics. I think it's so important. That's why I fought to get the class offered at the Lebanon campus. Um, and I know how interested I became when I took my first class in college and realized how much I didn't know, how much other people didn't really know. And I'm hoping to address some of the things that make a healthy relationship because that really is the benefit and one of the goals of sexual behavior. Um, Sex in a healthy relationship is what pulls a lot of things together. We release chemicals that um, help that bonding and, and help enhance things. And as I usually tell my students, healthy sex is something that should be fun and hilarious and messy and noisy. Yes, that is, uh, that is true. <laughs> that is true. And I'm glad that you are kind of like just putting it out there that <laughs> this is how it's supposed to be. So don't be, um, don't feel weird if it's the case. Well, it's, um, to quote one of my college mentors, sex is a wonderful thing, but it can be misused. Uh, and that it, unfortunately had been a lot of my professional experience early on. I um, was a therapeutic facilitator for adult incest survivor groups and listening to the stories of unhealthy experiences really drove me to want to see how people can develop better relationships um, and sexual encounters, whether it's, it's through a conventional relationship that is monogamous or um, within a lot of the social constructs that we tend to have, or those who are exploring what they um, appreciate in themselves as sexual beings, what they appreciate in others. Um, it was when I learned another level of sexuality, which was some of the early history that 
I don't think most people share. Um, we know that there are religious connotations and um, values around sexuality and that's fine. But when you go back really far in human history, sexual behavior was not just intimate, it was sacred. It was seen as a way to experience something fully outside of yourself, um, to have a connection with another person and the experience of orgasm that takes you out of yourself and two people really can become one and it's it was seen in ancient cultures as a way to connect to the spiritual to the divine and somewhere we lost that connection when um when most people hear about kama sutra the immediate association is all of these wild <laughs> positions yeah. and uh, that's not really um, the main focus. It is how to please a partner, how to um, recognize what's going to be the best match, not just physically, mm. but from social perspectives and emotional connections and what won't really lead to a healthier relationship. And I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. Uh, as I got more involved with gender studies, then I started to learn more about the different experiences that men and women have. Um, there's a lot that's the same, definitely. And yet there are some differences. How we communicate is uh, sometimes different by gender. Um, and most people go out there into relationships without any of this information, without questioning, without looking. People might go search online for um, some sexual enhancements, things that improve techniques, um, or whatever, but not some of those deeper things that lead to a better sexual experience. When we look at how many people in our culture have first experiences that range from uncomfortable too horrific. When we look at our statistics on child sexual abuse, on sexual aggression, coercion, and, and it's in the news more and more, it's been there long before the Me Too movement, mm. long before information started to come out on predators um and we still have a long long way to go that's a whole other discussion in itself um but we start out as sexual beings from day one 
babies start exploring their bodies once they can move around and they realize that oh this is an area that feels really good i think i'll try that again <laughs> um and like many things uh it's not a right or wrong behavior it's personal you know these early behaviors that we see in children masturbation in toddlers and preschoolers is so normal and so common and that's such a great opportunity to start helping a child understand personal boundaries um mm. so letting a child know that yeah that feels good and this is something that you don't do with your friends or in front of family this is something like going to the bathroom there's a special place or you know it's something that you do on your own um and acknowledge that it's pleasurable because that's the way it's supposed to be and with more recent um, discussions about sexual orientation and the transgender population and the different sides of the discussion where there are very all or nothing views of there are just men and just women. Well, that's sort of true. Um, there are X chromosomes, which are female and Y chromosomes that are male. And yet genetics can throw some curveballs where we get people who are intersex, who, um, whose bodies don't quite fit what we typically see, uh, whose brains develop a little differently. Um, some of the research on pheromones, which play a huge role in sexual attraction. Studies on individuals who have same-sex orientation um, don't find the pheromones of the opposite sex as attractive but they do when they're exposed to same-sex pheromones. I find that interesting. I think that says something biologically that there's something a little different going on. And pheromones tell us a lot about another person. Mm. <laughs> when we become attracted to someone sexually when there's that interest there. All humans, all mammals, release pheromones. Um, they come out of an entirely different sweat gland than the sweat glands that cool us off. Mm. And it sends those signals. And if it's someone that we don't find a good match. Um, maybe it's because the genetics, just the DNA is just a little too close to our own. Mm. We're more likely to find the pheromones of that other person pretty awful. Mm. Um, whereas someone that we're attracted to that is sexually physically healthy and a good genetic match they smell better to us <laughs> um now granted our culture does interfere with that a bit <laughs> um with the colognes and how often we shower and deodorants yeah. um i think it's the italians that have a saying that if you want to find your best partner, smell their armpit. 
Wow. <laughs> and it's for that reason. It's to I get those pheromones yeah. uh, to see if, hey, is, is this someone for me? Wow. Um, which makes me wonder, how often do we make mistakes because of the deodorants and the colognes and everything else we do to mask um, those, those chemicals? Um, there are progressive things that happen when we are attracted to someone. Um, I love talking about the response cycle. So thank you, Masters and Johnson, who did a lot of the early um, lab studies. Uh, and it was the same. If, if a person was healthy, it was the same progression. Um, so when I've worked with a variety of people uh, on relationships and finding the right one or, or finding someone that you have a chance, um, there are things to look for the dilated pupils um, and that doesn't change even if the lighting is bright if a person yeah. is interested their pupils are going to dilate it could be bright sunlight if they're interested mm. um if the pupils aren't dilated they're not into you <laughs> um now, question, question about that really quick yeah. Um, is that something that happens like consciously, like the person who is attracted kind of like consciously knows that like, hey, this is happening or, or just unconsciously like <laughs> because the person is attracted, it's just going to happen no matter it's what you that's do. That's going to happen. You, you see someone fine out there and those peoples are going <laughs> to dilate. <laughs> When they look even more interesting to you, especially if you get that little bit of pheromone activity, yeah. um, that's when you get that sexual flush. Um, and it shows up no matter what um, the skin tones are. It's a little more challenging to notice it in someone who has a darker tan or um, richer skin tones for someone like me who is very pale. Mm -hmm. um, it shows up really fast, mm -hmm. but it's the same thing like the, the pupil dilation. If there isn't that reddening of the neck and chest area, mm -hmm. they're not really seeing you as attractive. They're not interested in that way. Mm -hmm. um, to try to force it, probably isn't in your best interest so okay I, i'm just i'm just intrigued now in the sense of like uh people who are um what's it called like players you know guys and i mean girls too as well who, who oh yeah like to to interact with different people and and create that type of uh, magnetic reaction my question is do they know their target market kind of thing? Like, do they know the type of person who's going to be attracted to them? So that's why they have the ability to, to play. I'm going to say play, but like, um, uh, make like, you know, match with different people. They increase that interest. Um, or do they kind of like create such a, a magnetic, like their personality is so magnetic that sometimes maybe the person is not maybe attracted at the beginning physically, but then they find that person more attractive over. Over time. Yeah, that does happen. Uh, but that initial physical response probably isn't going to be there right away. Yeah. That's something that will come later. Whereas if there's someone that we immediately find attractive, um, that response is, is there immediately um there are th things to consider though uh since you mention the the players or or the people that might know this and find ways to manipulate or use it um 
part of the reality is that's why we have cosmetics is that kind of fake it till you make it and that goes back to ancient times okay somebody realized that um darker eye makeup makes the pupils look bigger so it makes the person look like they're interested even if they're not mm. um rouges and blushes um in fact i've seen in women's magazines when discussing makeup application uh it was recommended i don't know if it still is because i've gotten away from that kind of um medium mm -hmm. um but young women especially were encouraged to put blusher um on their chest area to again fake it till you till you make it mm. and i think that really does people a disservice of course because it, i always thought it just sets people up to find wrong people mm. um rather than connecting with someone who is likely to be a great partner whether it's going to lead to a more intimate relationship or if it is just a sexual encounter you want that encounter to be the best it can be you don't want to walk away from something feeling bad about a decision or feeling horrible if recognizing that there was manipulation or coercion or something there that shouldn't have been. Now, I'm glad you touched on that because I was gonna kind of like touch a little bit on the hookup culture, um, the, the idea of um, just the, the one night stands and all that stuff. Um, I mean, most of the conversations I've had with multiple different people on that topic is that most of the time there was alcohol involved, mm -hmm. uh, some type of maybe even drug um, to that, that was distorting their perception of reality and made them feel more comfortable with themselves and the people around them. Um, and I'm just kind of like intrigued when when people use those avenues to kind of like be able to i mean honestly I haven't had a case where like the person just hooked up being completely conscious of of the interaction uh most of the time i've heard they were like drunk or something like that um so i just want to understand are you are people doing themselves a disservice by getting drunk going out sleeping in, you know with different people who at the time and moment they're not completely aware of their of, of their you know surroundings and and what's happening and even you know what you said of potential coercion and, and other stuff that happened with that um, it certainly how does that work increases risks it's nice to be able to let go of um the social stigmas and and to feel more relaxed which chemicals are definitely going to do and they're going to reduce inhibitions um and sensory um, experiences are likely to be enhanced and of course that's going to feel good however if there hasn't been really good communication before that that's increasing the risk of sexual aggression manipulation um, it certainly risks physical sexual health because a person is much less likely to use protection 
And in almost all of the studies that, that I have encountered on child sexual abuse, on sexual aggression, the perpetrator has most often um, been drinking. Oddly enough, not so much drug use, but alcohol. Mm. Uh, I think that warrants more studies of what is it about alcohol? Is it because it's one of the few legal drugs? Um, it's something that is pretty mm. obtainable for most people. Is that why we see that um, correlation? Uh, or is there something else going on? Um, and if I still was involved with research, those are the kinds of questions that I'd be asking. Yeah, yeah. Um, and hookup culture. It, it was promoted at times to reduce stigma, especially for women and um, who were exploring their sexuality. And if it was truly embraced in that way, fine. However, the reality is we still live in a highly patriarchal culture. We still exist in uh, a rape culture, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. And very quickly things started to spiral into more and more young women, especially um, being coerced into situations that they really weren't um, cons fully consenting to, um, knowingly consenting. And sex is best when there is strong consent, when there is that, yes, this is what I want, this is what I like, because then you can communicate more openly and tell a partner that, nah, I'm, I'm not into this. I'd really like to try that. So let's look at how, um, how we can connect in these activities. Um, and if there is that enthusiastic consent and respect for one's own and a partner's health, um, and it is adults, great. Um, I think our society still gets very hung up on what is appropriate. Um, and there are still groups out there that put sex into very narrow boxes, which I always found baffling because some of these same groups see no problems with child abuse or sexual violence. Um, they look away from it or ignore it and yet try to intervene with consenting adults who might want to explore something a little different. Um, and these are the kinds of things that energize me when I talk about sexuality. Um, 
how we get caught up in sometimes in the words um, from a clinical perspective for anyone in medicine or, or psychology or sociology, sex pretty much means one thing um, in terms of the, the hormones and the genetics and all that biological stuff. Whereas out in the world, uh, people hear the word sex and they always think the action. Mm. And I think that creates confusion mm. in many ways. Um, is someone with a medical or a psychological background, uh, um, especially sp specialists in sexology, um, when we would hear the, the word sex, we're going to be thinking about um, male, female, and the intersex population. And we'll be thinking from all of those biological perspectives. So when, when I hear um, someone talking about transgendered individuals, um, the whole range of orientation, I don't, I rarely think about associated sexual behaviors. Mm -hmm. It's, it's always about the physical. It's always about the, the biology. Um, I think it would be nice if more accurate terms were used. Mm. Um, Cause it would open up better communication. I think. Um, as as you mentioned at the beginning, these are things that people don't talk about. Nope. And how ludicrous is that? Because this is what people look for. We look for that that person or those people that we connect with. Um and there's a lot of social pressure to be in relationships or to be sexually active. And yet we don't talk about it. It's gotten better. It's gotten a lot better. And it can get even better. Um, and there are so many things that people just don't know when partners are communicating and this isn't so much for same-sex partners but for opposite sex partners um just how men and women hear things um <laughs> women hear tone of voice we process words and the sounds of words in different areas of the brain. And I think when men don't know that, <laughs> it puts men at a disadvantage. Because, um, yeah, I've talked to so many men who are just bewildered when their girlfriend or their spouse says, well, what do you mean by that? <laughs> it's, it's because she heard something in a tone of voice that um that didn't match what was being said and men tend to more likely not that it's 100% but the male brain and and auditory system tends to hear um the the focus of what is said and it's and it's very concrete and what you say is what you mean and if you want me to do something just tell me so you know the female more typical female um 
attempts at saying something that are more subtle, like wash, walking past a, a full trash can and saying, wow, the, the trash is really um, gotten out of hand with the expectation that their partner is going to hear that as a clear message of, I need you to take out the trash. <laughs> and the oh. average male auditory system is going to hear this fact that there's a lot of trash in the trash can. And they'll walk past and say, yeah, <laughs> and walk on and do <laughs> um, I think if, if we knew more of that about each other, um, you know, how many conflicts could be quickly resolved or little irritations? We wouldn't be getting into those little irritable fights if we knew. Um, that there are different ways to to speak um some people call them love languages yeah and there are books out there certainly on love languages and um it's great if you find someone that has the same love language it doesn't mean that you can't connect with someone that has a different language you just need to know which is why it's so important to talk about this stuff. Um, it's not just the physical. The, the intimacy of a real connection just enhances everything. So that when you get into enjoying sexual encounters with that other person, you're going to find that it's fun and hilarious and messy and noisy, which is what it's supposed to be. Definitely. I, I want to ask you, um, like, do you think that the Western culture and view of sex versus the the Eastern culture view of sex um, is less healthy and there's less meaning behind the, the 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 implications of having a sexual connection and relationship with someone because I feel like not not feel like I, I've I've done research on the topic and the 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 eastern view of sex as you already mentioned earlier seems to be more in depth there's more depth to it um it's not just the the physical aspect of it but it goes into the spiritual aspect of it and and, and the emotions and all the stuff that goes with it and and how it's generally supposed to be rather than this just like um uh, you know the the hollywood image yeah. of how sex looks like you know with porn and, and, and that that is so not real yeah. um that is acting <laughs> yeah um yeah uh, hmm interesting question um historically yeah there are very clear differences and some of those still exist um with the westernization Globally, though, mm. um, Western culture has um, influenced those Eastern cultures. And uh, I'm not sure that there's as much of a difference as what there once was. I do think there are more um, populations of, of people who do embrace in Eastern culture uh, uh, a more spiritual aspect of, of sexuality um, where at least if nothing else, there's an acknowledgement that 
there's a whole person and that the goal is mutual pleasure um that it's it's not to be one-sided um and that deep connection uh in indian kama sutra one of the things that impressed me greatly uh even given all of the um descriptions of different positions of um of intercourse or or any kind of of pleasuring um is the mandate that the couple always maintain eye contact wow that's so cool um huh. now for some positions that's <laughs> going to be a little more challenging yeah 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 um however there is this mandate that at least um during shifts in positions or during the encounter mm -hmm. that eye contact is going to be maintained you can't do that comfortably if you don't have a connection with the other person so interesting yeah that makes sense um i mean we know clearly and this is another it's not specifically part of the sexual response cycle but it could easily be uh and that is eye contact um we know that when a person is anxious uncomfortable um frightened of another person or a stimulus we can't look at them that's, that's our first response yeah mm -hmm. um whether we're aware of it or not and so to maintain eye contact through such deep physical intimacy it, it takes that that next step mm. whether it is a casual um sexual encounter or whether it is with a long-term partner and of course if you're with a long-term partner and the relationship is um, healthy, you're going to be able to maintain that intimacy. It's going to um, be a better experience because with that connection, we become less selfish. Mm. And our partner becomes less selfish. And what could be better than giving intimate pleasure to each other? I just can't imagine, except for maybe chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's, that's hard to beat. Um, there are yeah. probably a few things out there, but... Um, they're competing right there. <laughs> <laughs> but that and chocolate? No. Yeah. <laughs> and the ice cream? Oh, that's, that is over the top. That's an easy one. <laughs> um, that's where a person would need a few days to recover. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Hey, so, so my, my, one of the things that came to mind is how important it is to have a healthy self-image of yourself when having um, a sexual encounter with somebody else. A lot of people struggle with their, their view of who they are. They're, they're not confident about their bodies, about their personalities, about a lot of things about them. And so uh, obviously when, when I guess this is, this is just me kind of like based on, on different things that I've researched and learned and viewed. Mm -hmm. the, the idea of having a, a healthy self-image of who you are your identity also transfers to 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 your sexual interactions 
Uh, and if so, if that's the case, I would like to know if there's any actual probably like maybe research on that topic. Um, there are a couple of things. Uh, certainly from an emotional perspective, um, for someone who does not value themselves, if you think about the kind of partners that they're going to be attracted to or, or that they see as on the same level, mm. it's going to increase the likelihood that they're going to have encounters that are unpleasant, unfulfilling, because chances are they're going to be um, connecting with people that also have a low self-image, low self-esteem. Um, it's certainly one of the factors that comes into play with someone who has had very unhealthy um, encounters or have been victimized. Um, how they see themselves then portrays this outward um, personality trait that becomes a signal for others who are more likely to take advantage. And then a person becomes re-victimized. Yeah. Because they present themselves. Um, and to come out of that is extremely difficult without a lot of support. Um, but there are some neurological reasons why uh, unhealthy experiences and um, the negative messages of, of sexual behavior um, physically, especially for females. Mm. Um, and I encountered this a, a little more recently in some of the neurological work. Um, the main nerves of the pelvic area that connect to all of our physical areas of sexual pleasure. Um, in males, those larger nerve connections are um, from that those areas, those sensitive erogenous genital areas, and they they kind of stay connected only to the very lowest parts of the spinal cord. Yeah. In women, there are um, interconnected nerves that actually go farther up the spinal cord. Mm. And there is some evidence indicating that because that information for pleasure or pain is sending messages farther up the spinal cord, that some of those messages actually do reach areas of the brain and are processed um, in physical memories. And that's going to inhibit um, the experience of sexual pleasure. And if you're experiencing discomfort, um, it's not something that you're going to want to do again. Uh, and because these are, are topics that we don't easily discuss in our culture, uh, there are a lot of people who aren't sharing that information with their doctors. Um, because there are some medical conditions that can cause um, pain uh, during sex or, um, or a lack of arousal. Um, things aren't working the way they should, and sometimes it's medication effects, sometimes it's um, other health issues, and then 
people spend a part of their adult lives then with very unfulfilling um, sexual relationships. And that's just so sad. Yeah. Um, if I could wave a magic wand, it would be everybody has, you know, wonderful experiences. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the physical experience of orgasm is intense when, um, when everything is working the way it's supposed to. And it's why people keep trying and, and seeking that and wanting to have that experience again and again, because it's so pleasurable. Mm -hmm. And we're built that way. Yeah. I, one of the things that um, it, it's, it's sad for me, especially in, in like as a man and seeing other men is that a lot of men feel the, like, you know, I'm going to speak more on the younger side. Mm -hmm. They feel like they need, they, they need to perform a certain way. So they take these medications and these things and they try to like, you know, do all of this stuff to, to compensate for, for a lack of sexual performance. And then, you know, it shows, it shows it when, when they're in the act of sex and it's sad. And, and many times they think they just need to keep, you know, using like outside resources to, you know, without actually needing them. Like it's not like they even have a medical condition. They just go and, Oh, let me try this pill or let me do this or let me do that. And like, they, they are deceiving themselves into thinking like, Oh wow! Like I'm, I'm doing all of this. You're not. You're taking some type of enhancement, enhancement, to to improve your your sexual interactions. But the thing is, though, also, we men are selfish, and and it's sad because like we, you know, we only are thinking about our, you know, our pleasure and what we can gain and obtain. But we're not thinking about the other person. I mean, honestly, like. If there's a word that I could use for for sex, also is that you know sex is an act of service that you give to your partner to improve you know their life through pleasure, you know through healthy pleasure. And so if you learn how to uh, look at that, not to serve yourself and and obtain your own pleasure, you know, and orgasm, right? But how can you actually make it so that your partner, the person who is in front of you, can have, you know, an amazing experience. And sometimes we, because of the image that Hollywood and, and, and you know, the, the, all the, the, the content that is out there and yeah. the conversations that we hear from other people. And, and when you, you know, when guys are together, there's, you know, they start bragging about their encounters oh, and realities, like, yeah not even close, you know, to what the reality was of the occasion. So, so a lot of guys listen to this and unconsciously create these, uh, you know, perceptions of what it should be and what they should do without even asking their partners, like, hey, well, what do you want? Like, it's such a simple question. Yeah, <laughs> because we don't talk about this exactly. stuff. Yeah. Um, so we get our information from movies and TV shows and porn and, you know, what our friends tell us. Um, and, and again, how ludicrous is this? Because it, it sets men up to not be themselves. Yeah. Um, and to engage in, in things that their partners probably don't necessarily want. Mm -hmm. Um, I've talked with, with so many men and women over the years, because um, I'm ancient, um, <laughs> and many of the heterosexual women um, who have been very sexually active have pretty much across the board said, Stamina only goes so far <laughs> um, in their male partners. After a while, 
um, the female body is no longer producing the lubrications and the things to make it pleasurable. Yeah. And it's either going to become boring or painful. Is that really what their partner wants to create? I wouldn't think so. Um, and then I see men who get that backlash in their partners um, think it's them try harder yeah. to compensate um, and not realizing that that's not as important as what people think. Um, one of the healthiest things that I think men and women can do in their self-image and their, uh, their sexual image of themselves mm -hmm. is um, to not pay attention to the body images, to not make comparisons. Um, because when you talk realistically with most people, the majority of people, it, it's maybe an initial attraction but when they are looking for a partner to share um, experiences, they want that sharing um, to, to be with someone who looks a certain way is just bragging rights. Yeah. Um, the analogy that I sometimes use is if you like roller coasters, how are you going to have the, the best experience? If you get on the roller coaster and your partner stays on the ground and they watch you on the roller coaster or if they come with you on the roller coaster? I don't know why I use that analogy because I don't like roller coasters. <laughs> <laughs> However, um, in some ways it works because there's that breathlessness and that excitement and that, um, that tension. Um, that's what makes roller coasters fun for most people. Definitely. My last question to you is if somebody wanted to become more educated in the right way, and, and start receiving the right messages and the right image of what sex really is and it should be, where can they go? Where can, where can we go? Where can people go to, to get that information? And there are some really good sources out there, definitely. Um, talking openly and honestly with other people is probably the best. Um, so you get that firsthand um, in terms of um, people to, to kind of listen to um, that have done TED Talks um, from both male and female perspectives, because there is that need for balance. Yeah. Um, and understanding both. I'm a firm believer in that. Um, Jackson Katz, um, that's K-A-T-Z, has done a number of TED Talks over the years um, about how the effects of, um, of our culture on sexuality. And I think once a person has an understanding of that, you're better able to see where things go wrong so that you can take a different path. Um, and actually one of the, um, cause I was putting together some notes for tonight. Yeah. Um, Naomi Wolf's book, Vagina, that came out a few years back. Um, from the feminine perspective, uh, I think is a great resource. 
uh, anyone who has an opportunity to take a class in human sexuality at the college level, because those courses do tend to be pretty comprehensive. Um, with the good, the bad, and, and everything in between to, to just gain a better understanding and most importantly, um, to learn how to listen and communicate more comfortably. Uh, if there was one thing that I really loved about teaching, um, a course in sexuality was to see the progression of the students who were quiet or unsure or anxious mm -hmm. at the beginning and then at the end be um, so much more comfortable and and having people come back to me and say um this helped me open up to my partner mm. and, and we're talking about things and it has made things so much better. We're so much closer. Um, that is, is a gift that is um, beyond most of my teaching experiences. Um, finding you know people in the community who are willing to to talk openly and aren't um frightened but who who have information yeah. um and i know i chat on and on about this um pennsylvania is a state that does have um does allow public schools to teach sexual education and some schools do it very, very well. What many people don't know is that the um, Department of Education at the state level of Pennsylvania does not require high school sex ed classes to be medically accurate. Hmm. Thankfully, a lot of them are. Yeah. Um, but, and some don't do anything so the earlier the conversations can start i think the better um oh my gosh years ago when my kids were were very young there was a, a very popular kids book that came out i think it's um i think it was called it's all normal or something like that i'd have to look it up um terrific way to introduce um a range of conversations and information starting you know pretty young and i think that's brilliant yeah yeah that's i don't um, know if that answers your question no, that's perfect that's perfect i i really i think i mean i'm taking notes myself um, because I'm definitely going to keep doing research and learning, but, um, what, you know, what, what is the last thing you want to tell people about sex that you wish they knew or that um, I read it, reiterate? And I've said it all along. Um, know that it is how we function. It's, it's part of our gift to ourselves and to others. Um, I don't mean that in a promiscuous way. Um, get comfortable enough with a partner to be able to, to have an open conversation. For some people, that can happen very quickly. Um, and if you find yourself being uncomfortable, then it probably isn't the right time. Mm. Um, once you're able to start bringing some things up, it, it just, it makes things so much better. That's awesome. 
I am going to put resources. Some I'm going to do some research and, and see the videos that you kind of like mentioned with the tech talk. So I'm going to put them uh, in the description so that people can see that. But Deborah, thank you so much for uh, just being so knowledgeable in the topic and taking the time to actually share that with people in an honest, clear way. You know, there's not like a filter trying to kind of like, you know. Uh, yeah, I'm not filtered. <laughs> and that's great. That's great because that's the that's what it's supposed to be about. Just yeah. having an honest conversation. Um about sex. I think that's going to be the title of the podcast, An Honest Conversation About Sex. I like it. <laughs> that <laughs> works. <laughs> uh, but thank you, definitely. Thank you, guys. Uh, You're going to be listening to this podcast and uh, just make sure that when you listen to it, listen to it with an open heart um, and, you know, ask questions to those people that you know that, that can answer properly. But that being said, thank you and I'll see you until next time. Thank you.